Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. We're going to continue in our study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so uh, I am preaching in place to Pastor Jim this morning, and I know he's been bringing us some really powerful message uh, out of a book that we don't often look at. Uh, and it's not only a book we often don't look at, but today's topic is one that everyone loves to talk about when they come to church, and that's the topic of money. So I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, Last week, Pastor Jim took the message on worship, and then he called on the associate worship pastor to come in and, and preach about money the following week. Uh, but the good news is you don't have to sit here this morning and, and listen to what I think about money. We're going to look together in God's Word about what God says about money, and we're going to do it through the words and the observations of the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So let's go ahead and turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to look first this morning at verse 10. The word says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Father, as we open your word this morning, we do so with gratitude. Father, we're thankful that we've been able to come to worship you this morning, to express our love to you, and Father, to hear from you. So that's our prayer right now, that your words would speak that they would speak into our hearts and that we would be transformed. Father, we pray as we become more like Christ on this earth and await the day that you would call us home, that we would remain faithful to the ways that you've taught us and that we'd seek you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Does anyone remember the old television show called The Twilight Zone? Just a quick show of hands. Twilight Zone. I mean, there's been movies, there's been remakes. Uh, it's been around forever, but, you know, the original was a television series back in the 1960s, uh, and, I mean, it was just, a, it was known for science fiction tales that had just a surprise ending or something at the end that, that really made you think, and it had the iconic voice and, and presence there of Rod Serling. He would start out, he'd, he'd kind of set the scene for us, uh, let us know what was, what was going on, and then at the end he'd come back and kind of wrap it up, maybe give us a, a moral to the story. There was an episode titled The Rip Van Winkle Caper, and it aired on April 21st, 1961. Uh, obviously, I, I'm not quite old enough to have caught that original airing, but I can tell you I am old enough to remember when Netflix used to send you DVDs in the mail that you would watch and then return, and that's actually how I saw most of the Twilight, epi Twilight Zone episodes myself. Uh, but I remember this particular episode. It was, it was kind of gripping, right? So it starts with this group of, of four thieves, Right? These thieves have, have just gotten away with a, a major heist. They've, they've taken all this gold and they've retreated to their hideout in a cave in the desert. Uh, and there we hear from the mastermind, right? And he tells them, okay, the problem is we've got all this gold and, we, and we've, we've got all that we'd ever want, but right now this, this gold is hot, right? We're on the run. They're looking for us. Uh, there's no way we're going to be able to evade capture if we go out and try to spend all this right now. So the mastermind of the group, who also happens to be uh, an expert in chemistry, uh, he decides, okay, I've come up with this plan. We're going to enter a state of suspended animation for somewhere around 100 years. And we figure by that time, everything will have been cooled off. No one's going to be looking for us. They're going to assume that we're long gone, and we'll have all the gold to spend freely. Right now, before we go any further, I do feel obligated to tell you there, there will be spoilers in this message uh, but to be fair, I've given you over 60 years to watch this episode, so that's kind of on you at this point. So they wake up, and indeed it has been 100 years. 
And they find that, unfortunately, a rock has fallen on one of the glass cases where they were laying, and, and one of the thieves is just merely a skeleton when they awake. But you might not be surprised to learn they really they don't seem too broken up about this, right? Because now in split, instead of splitting this four ways, they get to split it three. All right, And then as they exit the cave, two of the thieves, they kind of start to argue with each other. There's a lot of mistrust, which, you know, again, unsurprising with a group of thieves. They think this guy's going to take away with all of it, and this guy thinks he's going to take away with all of it. All this kind of culminates in this scene where uh, one of the thieves runs over a guy with a truck. So another one down, just two left. And the real tragedy of that part is this, this murder has cost more than just the life of one of the thieves. It's left their getaway truck crashed at the bottom of a ravine. So with two surviving thieves, just two left, they pack up all the gold they can carry, and they set out across the desert in search of civilization, hoping maybe they can find their way into town and then start to spend some of this great loot that they've amassed. Well, even though he was the mastermind, he, he, makes, a, he makes a grave error. The mastermind is one of the thieves remaining, and he somehow loses his canteen of water walking through the desert. I'm not really sure. I kind of just accepted that part of the show. But the guy loses his canteen of water. He's there, thirsty, and he looks to his, his companion thief, and he says, hey, can you, can you give me a drink? Uh, to which the other thief replies, of course, of course I'll give you a drink. But it's going to cost you. How about one gold bar for one sip of water? A pretty steep price for water, but, but for someone trekking through the desert, he realizes his desperation and and finally agrees to it. This scene unfolds a few more times, one gold bar, one sip of water. And then the next day, the, the thief with the water informs him, you know what, I, the supply has gone down, and so the price is going to have to go up. Now it'll be two gold bars for each sip of water. Reluctantly, again, the, the mastermind agrees to this new arrangement, but he, he sees an opportunity as the thief with the water bends down, putting gold into to his sack, the mastermind takes another of his gold bars, strikes him across the head, and takes his life. So you'd think he has it all together now, right? Now he is the sole surviving thief with all the gold, and now he can have the water. But in one of those Twilight Zone twists, the canteen of water has fallen to the ground in the struggle, and all the water has spilled out sinking down into the desert sand, no longer able to, to save him on his trek. And so this surviving thief packs up all the gold he can carry, starts trudging off, trying to desperately find a, a source of water uh, or civilization or help in some form. As he treks, he, he can't carry all the weight. As he begins to stagger, he drops gold bars after gold bar all through the desert. Until finally we see him, he's clutching one last gold bar, desperate for water, and he collapses right at a road. Now it just so happens at this same time is when we see a stranger arrive on the scene. Finally someone who might be able to help, but it's too late. With the mastermind's uh, dying words, he offers this stranger his last gold bar if he would just give him a, a drink of water or a ride into town. A stranger observes him, take his last breath, it's too late, he can't take him into town. And so he takes the gold bar and he goes back to, to his very futuristic looking vehicle in this sci-fi episode and, 
in that vehicle is his wife, and they have a discussion about what just happened. She's wondering, you know, what was the deal with the guy in the road? Is he going to be okay? No, I, I don't know. He, he, you know, he's just wandering through the desert. He's not going to make it. And it was funny, though. He, he offered me this, this bar of gold, and he seemed to act like it was worth something. And that's when the audience realizes the real twist to the show. In their discussion, it's revealed that gold's now no longer worth anything. It seems that shortly after their heist 100 years ago, man had discovered a way to manufacture gold, and once that happened, then it had no real value at all. And so was the sad ending, the, the ironic twist, the big surprise, that these four thieves have given all that they had for something that was worthless. Now, this, this might just be a, a morality tale with a touch of science fiction thrown in, but, but I think it illustrates well the point that the love and pursuit of wealth is really just chasing after wind. Right, The allure of wealth, it, it led them to take risks and it even led them to take lives. All the while they were pursuing something that would turn out to be worthless. And though this story is, is fictional, I think you'll agree that the lesson is all too real for us. And the story, it actually mirrors the observations of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5. We just read in verse 10 that the love of money will leave you dissatisfied. And so in the verses following what we're going to do, we're going to observe what he calls the problem with money. And the first problem with money is that when you have it, others want it. Let's look together again at verse 11. It says this, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, the language here, it, it might seem a little bit cryptic, but the point he's making is actually one that, that we've all seen. We've all observed this. When someone acquires a lot of money or a lot of wealth, there are always going to be people and things that come around to take some of it. Think of the professional athlete. He, gets, he finally arrives, makes his first big contract, comes in suddenly to millions of dollars. What happens? The friends and the family, they come out of the woodwork, everybody wanting their peace. Saw an interview with a, a former professional basketball player. He famously made a fortune and lost it. And he said at one point in his career, he had 70 people that he was supporting just with friends and family. It's also why there's been rules implemented in several states that have lotteries that, that allow the lottery winners to remain anonymous. Because we've all seen that as well. Someone wins the lottery and if they don't have that anonymity, suddenly everyone is in there trying to get a piece of that windfall. And even apart from those extreme cases, which you say might not apply to you, I think we all kind of understand that along with more wealth come more expenses, right? You have to buy more insurance to preserve it. You have to hire lawyers to handle those who are after it. You have to hire accountants to keep track of it. You have to purchase security systems to protect it. And that's not to mention all the, the scammers on the bad side and charities on the good side that will vie for your time so that they might get a piece of that wealth. And I think all this actually leads us to a second problem that we see with money according to the text. And that's when you hoard it, it causes worry. Let's look now to verse 12. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You may not have heard much about her, but there was a woman named Henrietta Green. 
She was one of the richest women in America in the late 1800s and early 1900s. She came from a wealthy family and, and actually got a great inheritance of around $7 million. But that wasn't going to be enough for her. She took that $7 million and in the rest of her life, she turned it into $100 to $200 million. In today's money, that would make her a multi-billionaire falling in the list somewhere between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. She was great with numbers. She had a, a keen interest in financial markets from an early age. She was wildly successful dealing in stocks and in bonds, with real estate and railroads, with lending. But she's remembered as a miser. You see, she was obsessively frugal. She wouldn't trust anyone with her business affairs. She even moved amongst various small apartments in New York and New Jersey just to avoid paying the taxes on them. She reportedly wouldn't use heat. She wouldn't use hot water. She hated spending money, even if it was for medical care for her or her family. And this resulted in some disastrous consequences. It's even said that she had an irrational fear most of her life that someone was trying to poison her. You see, her focus on acquiring and on keeping that wealth, it resulted in constant worry, even though she was among the wealthiest people in the world at the time. And that's what our text is telling us. That's what it's telling us about hoarding wealth. It's that the very thing that we think will give us the greatest sense of security is actually the source of our own anxiety. I think the reason this happens is, is because of something that we all kind of know, that there's this, there's this other problem with money. And that's when you trust it, it can let you down. Let's go on. Verses 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes 5. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now this should come as no surprise to anyone here. We all know famous you know, riches to rag stories as they were. You know, where a stock market crash or a real estate bubble bursts or or major corporation goes under and suddenly a mountain of wealth just vanishes sometimes in an instant. And on a more relatable level, I think you know, we or, or someone that, that we're close to has, has probably lost a job, had a major medical issue, gone through a divorce, or maybe faced some kind of addiction that reduced what seemed like a stable and secure life into a life filled with uncertainty and, des and desperation. Now, these verses, they paint a sad picture of a man who had it all, thinking he was going to leave prosperity for generations to come in his family, but his riches vanish. And he's left with nothing to pass on except perhaps a cautionary tale. Now, there's no shortage of passages in Scripture which teach us that placing our trust in money is just asking for disaster. Let's consider this warning from Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And then in Psalm 62.10, we get this threefold exhortation. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, the first two things from that Psalms passage, that, they seem pretty obvious to us. I'm going I'm to go out on a limb this morning and say that probably no one in the room is, is kind of banking on extortion or robbery as being your ticket to a great retirement. But the last one, 
No, the last one, that that opens our eyes to a, a basic human weakness. You see, if we do start to build some wealth, start to get a little traction, start to build that bank account a little bit, then we tend to look to it for our security. Right? And that's why we're warned in Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. You know, like most of the Proverbs, this isn't meant to be some blanket statement that says every time someone acquires money and trusts in it, they're going to lose it all. No, that's not what it's telling us. What's meant here is that where you place your trust is vital in determining how your life will flourish. Trusting in the Lord will always lead to a more satisfying life than trusting in wealth. And this gives us a perspective beyond just the pleasures of the moment. And that leads us to the final problem with money. In the end, you have to leave it. You have to leave it. When you die, we don't don't take anything with us. And so Ecclesiastes 5, verses 15 and 16, they say it this way. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Now realize we're not, we're not breaking any new ground with this concept. I don't think anyone showed up here this morning thinking they would be able to take it all with them when they go. But it's definitely worth thinking about in light of today's passage. This isn't the only time this idea is expressed in Scripture either. In what most believe to be the oldest book written in the Bible, in the book of Job, Job shares these familiar words. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we all know the life of Jacob, uh, Job rather, and he goes from riches to rags and then eventually back to riches, but, but the statement he gives us here, this comes at the lowest point. He's just learned that everything he owns has been destroyed. Even all of his children have been killed. Yet this proclamation that we see here, it's sandwiched between a verse that tells us that Job worshiped the Lord and the verse after, which tells us that through all of it, Job did not sin. What a powerful example of perspective. Right? Surely Job loved all the things that he had. He enjoyed the wealth that, that was given to him. And, and no doubt, obviously, his children were very dear to him. But he had a greater perspective. True, he mourned the loss, and eventually he would challenge God, trying to figure out the source of all the calamity that had befallen him. But he always knew that it was the Lord who gave and the Lord that took away. And when he returned to dust, he would leave it all behind, whether it was much or it was little. So what do we do then? When we consider all these problems with money, we start to understand that that money exerts a strong influence on one's life. So now we're going to shift our attention from the problem with money to the power of money. See, all the problems we've listed this morning, they show us that when we have a love of money, it can be a goal that destroys. Let's look at the final word on the man who loved money in Ecclesiastes 5.17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. A sad picture indeed. And when I read this verse, my mind goes back to the classic black and white film version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I don't know why, maybe I was just thinking in black and white all week, but it 
It was nostalgic. Early in that movie, we get this picture of the old miser Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He's sitting in a, in a large, dark home, eating a bowl of porridge as he sits alone. And just then, the, the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, returns to haunt him. That's the picture I get from this verse. And while this may be a, a valid comparison to the man described in Ecclesiastes, I, I think there's actually kind of a problem with it. Right When we conjure up this caricature of a man, this incredibly wealthy and utterly miserable man, then we make it easier to, to think that we regular people, we're immune from that fate. Right, That's not us. I mean, to my knowledge, we don't have multi-billionaires gathering this morning to worship. And even the, the pretty well-off among us, I don't, I don't see us walking around with a, a scowl on our face ready to to shout humbug in the face of poor children at Christmas time. But what? What if the love of money is just more subtle than that? What if it's more sinister than that? What if the path to destruction is gradual and seems a bit more innocent? The love of money is it's not reserved for the ultra-rich or characters in a book or movie villains. Now, even if we agree that it can destroy someone, we have to realize that that destruction might not be evident to everyone. It may manifest in loneliness, in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, misery, or simply discontent. And we would consider that, that God himself has a plan unique to each and every one of us. I think the greatest destruction that this love of money could bring is actually a failure to follow God and to produce fruit. Consider for a moment Jesus' parable of the sower. This parable is unique in Scripture because we actually get an explanation from Jesus afterwards when the disciples ask him about it. If you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's very simple. There's a man who's going to be sowing seed, and he sows it in four distinct places. He sows it along the path, among the rocks, among the thorns, and on good soil. Let's zero in on that third group this morning. Listen to, to what Jesus said about them in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see, here's the true cost of loving money. You may have heard the word of the Lord and accepted it. Maybe even walked in it and, and you were doing well. But then Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they crept in like thorns, choking the growth you had experienced and keeping it from bearing fruit. We won't take time this morning to, to look at the entire parable, but I think it's clear from Jesus' explanation here that, that when you love money, you give it the power to keep you from growing in his word. For the unbeliever, this can be what keeps you from following the Lord at all. We only have to look to, to the rich young ruler example in scripture for that. He was called to follow Jesus, but he just couldn't fully devote himself to it because of his riches. For the believer, though, you may be allowing a love of money to rob you from growing through God's word. And so what conclusion do we draw from all this? If, if there are all these problems with money and loving it can lead to our destruction is the only answer to live in voluntary poverty. Now God, God may call some of us to that and if he does, 
Man, embrace it wholeheartedly. But the preacher in Ecclesiastes shows us that if that is the, God, the path that God has for you, it's not because the, the destructive power of money is inescapable. No, the text makes it clear that when kept in the right perspective, money possesses an altogether different power. Rather than being a goal that destroys us, it is a gift to be enjoyed. Let's look now to the end of our passage, starting in verse 18. The preacher says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toll, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So instead of being the motivation for all that you do, you can see money, work, or wealth as a gift from God. And from this, we get the seemingly contradictory statement there, rejoice in his toil. Now, a casual read through this passage in Ecclesiastes, it it might leave you with the author uh, saying something like, work is hard and meaningless, so enjoy it. That seems rather sarcastic and maybe even a bit condescending. Now, I think the key question that you've got to ask here is what will determine the kind of power money will have in my life? Will it lead to my destruction or to my enjoyment? And the answer to this is simple. We've already talked about it several times through this series. It's contentment. The Apostle Paul was a great example of this. And in his letter to the Philippians, he even just says it outright, states it quite plainly, says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. But you know, he goes on and he explains it a little bit more. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then we get the famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So don't be fooled into thinking that contentment just applies to being happy when you have very little. No, contentment is knowing that the source of your strength is in Christ and finding your worth in him rather than how much or how little you may have. Paul says there's a secret to facing plenty as well as hunger because contentment can be difficult when you have abundance as well as when you're in need. Some will receive a gift of wealth from the Lord, but they are called to contentment just the same as the person who lives in poverty for the Lord. And if we're really honest this morning, I think it's often harder to have true contentment when you have wealth. You have to be really careful to avoid shifting your trust from the Lord to your possessions. Paul says even more about this in his first letter to Timothy where he includes what amounts to be a commentary or a summary of the passage we've been going through in Ecclesiastes today. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
See, Paul reminds us again that the love of money draws us away from God's word and towards our own destruction. But if the opposite of this is contentment, then what will contentment lead to? All you have to do is read a little further in that passage. He gives us the answer a few verses later, starting in verse 17, where he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And this is where we get the fuller picture of what the preacher is telling us in Ecclesiastes 5. I seem to be honest this morning, when I, when I told you that money is a gift to be enjoyed, did your mind immediately go to ideas of exotic vacations or a luxury car, or maybe a bigger house? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. I mean, just we can all admit it quietly to ourselves that, that those thoughts may have gone through our head. Now, I'm not saying that you're wrong even. I mean, those might be things that, that are part of enjoying the gift of wealth that comes from God, but I think there's something even greater that happens when God bestows this gift on someone. Catch this. When you realize that money is a gift from God, it changes your whole outlook. It's going to change your desires, and it, that's going to change your behavior. Right? Paul teaches us that a proper view of wealth will lead to the rich doing good works and being actively generous. The motivation for this is, is not simply guilt over having a lot when someone else has almost nothing at all. No, instead, it's, it's the result of gratitude for the gift that God has given them by being generous with it. Remember, all through our passage today, nowhere is it said that, that money itself is evil. But we do get that exhortation that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right? Wealth can be seen as a gift from God to be enjoyed and to be shared. Or it can become an obsession which leads to destruction. And so I close with the way we open this morning. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This is the word of God for us today, and all God's people said, amen.